we look back and reflect on the loving faithfulness of God come to us as Emmanuel, God with us. As God with us, Jesus, by his death on a cross, brings the forgiveness of our sins, and by his resurrection, ushers in the beginnings of a new creation. Our world, however, does not fully reflect the reality that Jesus is king, and so we grieve that reality, looking to his future advent, his return, to make everything new. In Advent, we find ourselves in the tension between those two Advents, the tension of the already and the not yet. This psalm, which Christians for generations have reflected on during Advent, reveals the posture we are invited into in the midst of that tension. The fourth reading, fourth reading is taken from Psalm 126, verses 1 to 6. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Like those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing their sheaves with them. Here ends the fourth reading. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. Pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. There be far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Through Advent we have begun each one of our services with an ancient tradition the lighting of an Advent candle on the wreath. And as Orvin mentioned, each candle that we light represents something that Jesus brings us. And today, on the third Sunday of Advent, we lit the joy candle, inviting us to reflect on the reality that Jesus brings us joy. Joy is something that we all desire, right? We all yearn for. It was the French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, the human will doesn't take the least step except toward this object. The pursuit of joy is the motivation of every action of every one of us. But in experience, joy proves so elusive, right? Because we so often wrap up our joy in our circumstance. We all have our circumstantial if-onlys. If only I could get into that school. If only I could land that job. If only I could meet that special someone. If only I could get out of this difficult situation or relationship. If only I could find healing and mending of that ailment, that brokenness. Then, then I would know joy. But if we've ever had one of those circumstantial if-onlys satisfied, there's not been lasting joy there, has there? Why? Because another if-only quickly takes its place. 
Joy is also elusive because we're immersed in advertising that bombards us from every angle, telling us that joy can be purchased. It's a commodity up for sale. If you just had that car or looked this way or went on that vacation or invested in this asset, you would have joy. But joy in any mutable object, joy in anything that changes, will never last. It will always fade. So how then can we say that Jesus brings us joy when an experience, it just proves so elusive? This Advent, we've been looking at four psalms. Psalms that followers of Jesus over the generations have chosen to reflect upon during the season of Advent. And this Sunday that the joy candle has been lit on our Advent wreath invites us to reflect upon the nature of the joy that Jesus brings us. So I'd invite you to turn to that psalm in your Bible, if you have it with you, or on your phone, or in your pew Bible, and Psalm 26 is found on page 572. Now, as you're turning there, you might see that this psalm has been given a title, the Psalm of Ascent. It's actually the the title that is given to a series of psalms from 120 through to 134. And they were called that because they were sung by pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the three pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, Pentecost, and Passover. And they were called the Psalms of Ascent because topographically, Jerusalem was the highest city in Palestine, and so you spent much of your journey there ascending. But these Psalms were also called the Psalms of Ascent because metaphorically they expressed that this is the nature of a life that is lived upward toward God. Each of the Psalms reflected on different aspects of that life lived upward, rising, growing, up to different levels of maturity. So imagine for a moment a family, a neighborhood, a town, traveling together along the road to Jerusalem, and you're with them. And as they go along the way, they're singing familiar songs. Those songs spark conversation, reflecting, intentionally pointing their children to the truths that were contained, listening to the lived experience of their elders. When they got to this psalm, perhaps over a picnic lunch, they gather together to reflect, to converse, to think on the nature and experience of joy. And with the pilgrims, one of the first things we notice is that this psalm isn't all about joy, is it? I mean, we've got three verses at the beginning of remembering a time of national freedom and prosperity. There's overflowing joy and mouths filled with laughter and tongues embracing song, followed by three verses of sorrow. Life likened to a dry, arid, cracked desert, weeping, wailing. What does that tell us? I think that tells us, amongst other things, that 
that life is always an intermingling of joy and sorrow. We'll never find a time, a place, a set of circumstances where there's not sorrow diminishing our joy or joy sweetening our sorrow. That might seem quite obvious, right? I mean, that's the life way life is. But is it so obvious? If it is, why then is there alive and well within the church a theological framework that says it's God's job to rid our lives of sorrow? That it's God's job to organize the circumstances of our lives to bring us to joy, at least how we would define them. If it's so obvious that life is this intermingling of joy and sorrow, why do we continue to have this insatiable thirst for a reality that will never ever materialize? We'll never, ever come to a place where all of our circumstantial if-onlys are satisfied. In his book on the Psalms of Ascent, entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson reflects on how we pursue joy that is the absence of sorrow. He says, a common but futile strategy For achieving joy is trying to eliminate the things that hurt. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risk. Get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing your relationships. And then try and lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. It may seem obvious that life is always this intermingling of joy and sorrow, but our patterns of being and thinking rarely reflects that we've accepted that reality. But I think the psalm calls us beyond simply accepting that reality to embracing it, that the intermingling of joy and sorrow is how human life is meant to be lived. See, as Christians, we say that Jesus was fully God, meaning that when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. But we also say that Jesus was fully human, meaning when we look at Jesus, we see what it is to be truly human. And Jesus lived a life full of joy and full of sorrow and embraced them both. What did his enemies say of him? Drunkard, glutton. Too much partying. He immersed himself fully in the joyous occasions of life. He enjoyed the material blessings of our world. He turned water into wine to keep a party going. People were drawn to him, yes, because he had words that brought life. Yes, because he had a touch that brought healing. But they were also drawn to him because he was a joy to be around. He was also a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. One of the most common phrases that the Gospels use to describe Jesus' deep emotional life is that he was moved with compassion. It's a phrase that translates a very unique Greek word that's related to our internal organs, our guts. It means to be so moved by something that you feel it right down into your guts, right down into the core of your being. When Jesus encounters 
pain and sorrow and violence and evil and abuse of power. The Gospels tell us that he was moved to the very core of his being with compassion. And out of that place, he stepped with love, with tears that relate, with words that teach, with hands that heal, with strength that protects, with an embrace that welcomes. Why? Because more than anyone else who's ever walked the face of the earth, he knew the Father's good intentions for his creation and saw how sin and death had marred that good creation and he was moved to the very core of his being that guided his response. He was a man of sorrows. Don't just accept that life will be the intermingling of joy and sorrow. Embrace it. That's how human life is meant to be lived. And as we grow, as we come to know Jesus more deeply and truly, not only will that deepen our joy, as we come to know the immutable, unchanging grace and love that he has for us in Jesus that's the grounding for our joy, but we also will find our sorrow deepening as our eyes are open to the glory of new creation and we see more clearly how sin and death has marred it and we too would be moved with compassion and guided in our response. Life is the intermingling of joy and sorrow. Don't just accept it. Embrace it. Grow in it. And as we grow in this life lived upward toward God, the psalmist invites us as fellow pilgrims to a posture in the midst of our sorrow that cultivates, that deepens, that increases our joy. It's often said that suffering shapes us into better people. But we know that that's not always the case, is it? There's some people who go through suffering and it's shaped them into wise, compassionate, caring, soft-hearted people that are a joy to be around. And then another can go through those same circumstances of suffering and they come out the other side and their anger as a hair trigger and they're hard-hearted and they're bitter and resentful and they're not all that pleasant to be around. So our experience tells us that there's a way to go through sorrow that actually deepens our joy and there's a way to go through sorrow that steals our joy. Two of the three pilgrimage feasts also came around harvest time. So the pilgrims were going up to Jerusalem not just to celebrate, but to taste, to taste the first fruits of the harvest. And that agrarian focus shapes the psalmist's poetic reflection. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. The psalmist is saying, if you want to come out the other side of sorrow with something to show for it, you've got to do something intentional with your tears. Meaning there's a way to go through sorrow that just wastes the tears. You come out the other side with nothing to show for it. Well, how so? 
in a reflection on this psalm, Tim Keller says there's two ways that we commonly waste our sorrows. The first is to, to bottle them up, to cover them over, to not give them expression. We, we might do this because we want others to see around us that we're, that we're strong. We've got this. The seed of sorrow remains unplanted. It stayed in the seed pouch. Come out the other side. Nothing to show for it. The second way to waste our sorrows is, is to simply dump them. To take that seed bag and just dump it on the ground. To vent it out. To just spill it. As a pastor, I've noticed over the years a, a pattern of people when it comes to their sorrow. They'll make an appointment to, to come and see me or someone else on the pastoral team, and they'll vent out their frustrations, maybe at a spouse or a child or, or a parent. Like bleeding a hot water radiator, it'll just come hissing out. They'll, they'll feel better for having unloaded it, for having that sorrow be heard, but nothing changes. They go back to the same situation, and the air will build once more in the system. Frustration will mount, and once more it'll need to be vented out, and the cycle repeats itself. Bottling it out, up, venting it out, wastes our sorrows. Come out the other side having nothing to show for it. The psalmist invites us to sow to plant, to do something intentional with our tears that we might reap a harvest of joy. Now, what is that the psalmist invites us to? Well, the psalmist invites us to a particular posture, to both look back and to look forward. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, the psalmist looks back to the character and work of God in history. A time where there was joy, elation, incredulity. Pinch me, I've got, I've got to be dreaming here. And what incident does the psalmist have in mind? Well, we don't really know. We've got some best guesses, but at some level it really doesn't matter. The posture is what matters. Look back, the character and work of God in history. The follower of Jesus is invited to look back to Emmanuel, God with us, God come to us in Jesus to process our sorrows in light of a manger, a cross, an empty tomb. You see, we so often process our sorrows by assigning blame. Look what they did to me, how they've harmed me, how they've wronged me. But looking at Jesus on the cross, dying for our sin, invites me to process my own sin, to not just have my eye on their sin, but my own. How did I contribute to this? Where is my self-centeredness in evidence? Where did I cause wrong? Processing before the cross means I can answer those questions honestly and openly without the answers crushing me or bearing me, bearing me in guilt, for there I see Jesus crushed for my transgressions, Buried for my sin, stripped naked to cover me with his forgiveness. Processing my sorrow before the cross means I can't wallow in self-pity. For there is the only truly innocent victim.
victim, and it's not me. Processing my sorrow before the cross means I can trust God to work out whatever the situation is with purpose and meaning, for the cross looks foolish and senseless. And yet through it, God brings about new creation. The psalmist invites us to sow our sorrows that we might reap joy by not only looking back, but verse 4, looking forward. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was a desert in the southernmost part of Judah. It was an arid wasteland. It's not a hint of what makes for life. It was crisscrossed with the scars of dried riverbeds. Once or twice a year, if there was massive rainfall up in the mountains, suddenly those dry riverbeds would have rushing water flow through them, and then overnight the, the desert would erupt in a kaleidoscope of color, of life, of beauty, as grasses pressed up and flowers unfurled. It's an image that's used throughout Scripture to point to the hope that God will come and flood the earth with new creation, that the dry earth would flourish under his kingship. The psalmist here invites us to look forward, to process our sorrow before glory, before the light of that new creation. For then our sorrow is mingled with the sure hope that Jesus is coming to bring justice where there's bring wrong to bring life where there's been death, to bring peace where there's been conflict, to bring healing where there's been disease. Sowing our tears for a harvest of joy invites us to look back, to process our sorrow before a manger, a cross, an empty tomb, but it also invites us to process our sorrow looking forward to his return, to the glorious promise of new creation. It is no mistake or simple poetic license that leads the psalmist to reflect on this truth with agricultural imagery. For the sowing of sorrow to reap joy is an organic process. We should not expect immediate results. There will be times and seasons where it appears that nothing's happening The weight of sorrow rests heavy, but then a shoot of green, a leaf unfurls, a fresh rain has the stalk pressing skyward, and then a harvest of joy. It's no mistake that the psalmist is using agricultural imagery for this process, this posture is organic in nature. The more you pour out your sorrow, the more you reap joy. The more you plant seed, the more you get harvest. So don't hold anything back. Pour out your sorrows to their fullest. Lose it all. Plant it in the fertile ground of his grace, his love, his forgiveness. We lit a candle at the beginning of our service of worship, inviting us to reflect on the nature of the joy that Jesus brings And so it seems appropriate in a service of lessons and carols to give a carol the last word. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let us receive our King. 
Let every heart prepare him room as he deepens our joy and deepens our sorrow. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let us let go of a joy in mutable, changing realities and receive a joy that is founded on an immutable and unchanging wonders of his love. Wonders of his love displayed on a cross. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let us process our sorrow, not only looking back to the cross, but looking forward to glory. For he comes to make his blessings flow, to flood the earth with new creation, far as the curse is found, far as the curse of sin and death is found. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Jesus comes to bring us joy. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.